This is an ABC podcast. Storms and heavy rain have caused flooding in parts of Albany on the south coast. The state emergency service... A powerful storm has left a trail of destruction along Most were reports of roof damage, flooding... Gusty winds felling trees and power lines in the region, leaving a big mess to clean up. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track. The winter on the southwest coast of Western Australia has certainly been a memorable one. From Esperance, right around the southwest corner to places like Yellingup, the towns have been slammed by a string of storms. Power outages, trees down over the roads, these are usually the most obvious signs of the wild weather. Infrastructure at some of the southwest's most iconic locations has been destroyed by coastal erosion this winter. But the other most noticeable impact is what it's done to the coastline. Fiona Pepper has been investigating what's been dumped on these beaches and what's been taken away. While the immediate focus in the aftermath of these storms and its impact on the coast tends to be on infrastructure like surf clubs and car parks, what about the mysterious objects washing up on our beaches? and the things that have been uncovered by this unrelenting swell. It's raining. This winter in WA, it's always raining. Hello. Yes. And I've come to the UWA campus in Albany to meet with oceanographer Dr Harriet Patterson. Hi. I've got this very heavy bag of stuff. Oh, look at this. Yeah. Bring it in. Let's have a look. Oh, oh my goodness me. Yeah. There's three pieces of it. A few days earlier, I'd been walking along Denmark's Greens Pool, an incredible beach. But I was slightly alarmed by the amount of plastic that had been washed up because of these storms. And that's when I came across three squashed basketball-sized lumps of black stuff that smelt strongly of petroleum. We carried five or six kilos of the stuff off the beach. And then, via Twitter, I tried to figure out what exactly it was. Some people suggested it might be the very valuable ambergris or whale poo. But then others thought that it was just waste from a fire on a ship. Anyway, I'm keen to get Harriet's opinion. Yeah, so I think you've got some tarballs. They're uh, hard and crusty on the outside. But when they're broken open, there's sort of a layer of black solid, well, not solid, it's um, very viscous oil-like substances uh, on the inside, a little bit like a layers in a sandwich. So we're not sure whether it's um, natural or not? Uh, no, we'd have to do a little bit more testing to be sure. But tarballs, uh, they're, they're not uncommon in some parts of the world. I don't think they're particularly common here. Mm. Certainly in the United States, they wash up fairly frequently. Harriet explains that there are places on the bottom of the seabed called seeps and they're subsurface hydrocarbon reservoirs. And a tarball would be emitted from one of these underwater seeps. So where these have come from, I'm not sure, but they could have come from a seep not far from where we are on the south coast. They might have washed in from a, a lot further away. Um, and, of course, we can't rule out that they might have come from some fire on a ship or some sort of beach activity that somebody's been doing. But we'd need to do a little bit more research to find out what exactly they are. Great. And you've got a colleague on the go. 
Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of colleagues I have in mind to uh, put this through um, one of the very technical microscopes we have. We can use uh, either Raman microscopy or FTIR microscopy. So it, it um, you know, lasers and mirrors and things and a bit of smoke and what have you. And you get a, um, a spectra out and then we can put the spectra against a, a library of known polymers or materials. And then we can work out what it is um, if it has come from the crust of the earth or whether it's come from through some man-made process. Harriet explains with the frequency of these storms, we'll see more plastic and potentially black lumpy things washing up on the beach. But equally, she's interested in what's being uncovered by this coastal erosion. Yes, so we're going to get more stuff arriving because the conditions are going to to, are right for that to happen. Uh, But, but, you know, if we're getting more erosion of the coast, we need to start looking at to... um, what else is going to be affected by the erosion that's caused by the wind and the storms? Not just the current infrastructure. There's, you know, what else is in the dunes that we may have forgotten about that's going to be coming, you know, coming out of the dunes. So I've spent most of this winter in Denmark, in the southwest of WA, and the beaches are remarkably different to how they looked only months ago over the summer. Hello. Good, thanks. How are you going? So I've come to the Indian Ocean Marine Research Centre in Perth to find out what's been going on this winter. I'm Dr. Michael Cutler. I'm a coastal oceanographer at UWA's Oceans Graduate School and UWA Oceans Institute. Mike monitors beach survey sites from high up in the Pilbara right down to the Albany coast. This winter's actually been a pretty wild one. It's definitely been one of the more uh, energetic that I've seen since I've been in WA. Uh, And even when you look back at some of the long-term wave records that we have, so Department of Transport's been maintaining wave buoys along the coast for since the early 90s. And if you look at this recent July compared to all the other years on record, it has the highest average wave conditions. So yeah, definitely been a lot of big waves impacting our coastline. And those waves have been caused by these huge storm systems that we've had. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. So we've had from the northern extents where we've had a bit more of an active tropical cyclone season all the way down to some of the storms coming out of the southern ocean. Um, Yeah, it seems like there's been a new storm every week almost this winter. And huge amounts of rain. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them have been very wet as well. A lot of the rivers are looking very full and the estuaries are very full which on the south coast at least has led to a lot of those natural inlets um, either having to be opened, which they are manually, uh, or some of them have actually been breached naturally just due to the river outflows. Okay, so as Mike says, there's been what feels like a storm every week. So what's causing this? A lot of this winter could be related to sort of natural interannual variability. So you look at things like El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is determining if you've heard of whether we're in an El Nino or a La Nina phase, and that has huge implications for the rainfall that southwest of WA sees. So that could be one thing that's potentially at play. There's a variety of other sort of climate drivers like that. But yeah, we're still sort of, at least from the wave perspective, we're still digging through a lot of the recent data to try to figure out what made this winter so much different than previous ones. What's the most obvious impact of this wave energy? 
from the beaches I've been on, you see severe wave erosion. Um, and a lot of what that looks like is your dunes, instead of being nice sloping features, end up being right angles. Um, and that is due to waves accessing parts of the beach that they previously haven't and basically ripping all that sand back offshore as they run up and down the beach. Um, so if you'd been to the ocean beach down in Denmark, they lost what looked like up to a few meters of sand um, after the opening and with uh, opening of the inlet and with all of the wave events. And are we having particularly high tides or is it just the force of those waves is um, driving the, the water further up the beach? That is a good question. Um, at the moment, I haven't looked at any specific event yet, but typically your erosion is related to the combined impact of elevated water levels and higher waves. Um, and so if you have a big storm coming, which is basically a big low pressure system, you'll get elevated water levels naturally due to the low pressure systems. And that actually allows just your normal wave energy to access a higher part of the beach. Then if you have a large wave event on top of that, when waves break, they can further enhance and increase the water levels, which allows them to access an even higher portion of the beach. So you get really interactive effects. Um, so I imagine both were at play. How widespread has this coastal erosion been? Yeah, so from my own observations, I've seen some significant changes to beaches in the Albany and the Denmark region. Uh, I also run a citizen science coastal monitoring project through the southwest between Bustleton and Rockingham called Coast Snap. And from the user photos in that, we've seen beaches all along that coastline showing signs of erosion as well. Through some colleagues in Geraldton, we've seen it as far north as Geraldton as well. And then from some of my recent work in Exmouth, one of the beaches we've been studying there for the last 10 years or so is easily close to 40 meters um, of beach loss at one section of the beach. WA is a huge state. How can the entire coastline cop it so much? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the, all those beaches I just described are, what, 1,800 kilometers apart or something like that? Uh, I think there's been a variety of different things that have happened this year. So summer of 2021 was a relatively strong La Nina event. In general, that causes the Lewin current strength to increase, which all along WA can increase the water levels. For the northern sections like Ningaloo Reef area, when you have increased water levels, you can change the way the waves break over the reef. And so I think some of that was potentially happening. So with elevated water levels, the waves can actually make it further towards the coastline instead of breaking at the reef, which means you have more energy reaching the shoreline. Combined with that, we had a pretty intense cyclone season up north, which a lot of them actually managed to track westward and then come down. So there was TC Saroja that came and hit Shark Bay and Calbarry. So I think up north, there was just a pretty interesting set of conditions. And then for the south coast and sort of Perth metro, it just seemed like a lot of those low pressure systems were actually tracking a lot more northerly than they typically do, which brought some of the direct impacts right to the coast where a lot of us live. While Harriet and I wait for the results of what could be a tarball, Harriet's keen to show me a very specific example of coastal erosion at a beach between Denmark and Warpole on the southwest coast. Okay, from where I'm standing, I can see a nice little array of brown beer bottles. There are some plastic bags weeping out of the hill. 
We've walked a couple of hundred metres along Peaceful Bay when we spotted June, which is essentially spewing rubbish. But this isn't just any rubbish. We've seen a um, what looks like a Bailey's bottle. There's cans that are... They're definitely in the sand dune. Even an old bit of a hill's hoist I found. I mean, that's phenomenal. The, you cannot have a hill's hoist being left on a beach by a bunch of people having a, a party on the beach. It's not, not a normal beach uh, waste item. I mean, this time of year we are seeing a lot of crap washed up on the beach, but this spot is different. Yeah, this spot I've been led to believe is actually an, uh, a relic waste dump. So with the increased erosion we're seeing um, what we thought was buried and gone forever is actually being exposed again. And I imagine there's a bunch of sites like this along the coast that may be known about or not known about um, that are going to be releasing their, their trophies uh, back into the environment. So we're standing on the beach, you know, the, the, the water's probably, I don't know, 20 metres from, from us, but above us is what was once a, a rubbish tip but this rubbish tip I don't imagine you would have originally put it so close to the ocean the oceans come to it yes yeah, so my understanding is that the, the when they uh, first put this stuff put the rubbish here the coast was actually I, know, I was told a hundred meters further out so it's been a really slow gradual uh, loss of the dunes not not one big monumental loss like we're experiencing this year just a, a gradual um, nibbling away at where the edge of the coast is to now expose this um, old waste facility wow so a spot where we once thought we'd we'd buried our rubbish forever is not really the case uh, no and it's um a signal for the future you know we've we generate a lot of waste and we need to be more sensible in the way that we um, dispose of it. Should we go and have a look for some more rubbish? Ancient rubbish? Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, great. But in the scheme of things, this rubbish isn't exactly ancient. That rubbish tip was probably first created in the sand dunes of Peaceful Bay back in the 80s, when the dune system looked very different. And now its contents are literally falling into the sea. That was only 30-odd years ago. Sand dunes have been used by the traditional owners of this land for thousands of years. So what are the implications of some of their traditional practices as the beach dramatically recedes? Uh, my name's Doc Reynolds. I'm a senior traditional custodian of the Esperan Dalyarak Wadjari people on the southeast coast of Western Australia. Traditional name for Esperance is Kepa Curl or Gep, or which is, means um, water, and Curl means boomerang, and it's where the waters lie like a boomerang. So for 400 kilometres along the coastline, we have granite outcrops jutting out into the ocean, which create boomerang-shaped bays. So when people look around, they can see how the waters lie like a boomerang. Kepa Curl or Esperance is a small town about 700 kilometres southeast of Perth, and its beaches are famous for bright white, squeaky sand and crystal clear water. But Doc says this coastline wasn't spared this winter either. In my lifetime of living in Esperance, I've seen beaches disappear, I've seen granite and limestone rocks appear where they've never appeared. And even this uh, last season, I've been driving out on a lot of the beaches and some of the 
dune faces or the cliff faces of the dunes are over two, three metres high. So, you know, they've been really gouged out. What do the, what do the sand dunes represent? Well, for us, the sand dunes, well, they're, they're generally, um, it was a known burial areas of, um, of our old people or our people. And as we've lived there for many, many, many thousands of years, you know, obviously, and over that time, the coast, as they say, was about 80 kilometres south of Esmond, out on the continental shelf, so as the sea levels rose over time. The dunes that we've got now are seen as like ancient dunes, and, uh, and in that time, you know, hundreds and if not thousands of our people were buried in the dunal systems um, to because it was easier to dig and, uh, and to be able to bury them and put them in a in a position that they were able to face a, an iconic cultural place. Like any um, burial site, I suppose, that holds huge spiritual significance. We come from Mother Earth and we return to Mother Earth in the, in the way that we came into the world. And much is what we do today, but instead of having all of the, you know, um, meticulously kept gardens of uh, cemeteries, we have the meticulously kept bush or the coastal heath or the coastal shrub. So obviously, as we've said, the, the, the dunes are the burial sites and this winter, other winters obviously too, we've lost huge stretches of um, dunes. Can you talk about the implications? Being human remains found in dune systems. We are now uh, the Esperance Dalyarak Natatile Aboriginal Corporation is in the um, in the process of uh, re-interning the dunes that were unearthed way back in the early um, early 90s, 1990s. More recently, Doc says there have been at least two cases of human remains that have been exposed in the Esperance sand dunes, but he says the public seem more concerned with the loss of infrastructure. People are talking about the, the built environment that's getting um, washed away by the coastal erosions. Well, you know, you can replace that tomorrow, but you can't replace an ancient grave and the remains that that person was buried. Clearly, coastal erosion is complex and wide-reaching. So you might remember at the start of the program um, there was this black lumpy stuff that I found on the beach in Denmark. Uh, Harriet Patterson thought it might have been a tarball. Others thought it could have been waste that had come from a fire on a ship. Anyway, I found myself at the School of Molecular and Life Sciences at Curtin Uni. Is that accurate to say? (laughs) And I'm here with Dr. Mark Hackett. Mark, can you introduce yourself? I can. Uh, Hi, so I'm Dr. Mark Hackett and I'm an analytical chemist here at the School of Molecular and Life Sciences at Curtin University. We're standing in a chemistry lab surrounded by instruments. Here's Mark explaining what they're used for. Uh, And so all of these instruments are actually using different wavelengths of of light, uh, which are each giving us a a different sort of chemical information. uh, So we can sort of custom design our analysis uh, to identify different molecules and different samples. So, um, drum roll, what are the results of this black lump that, um, that you've tested overnight? So, um, you sent up a nice little, little package, uh, so I chipped off a, a tiny amount, literally less than a millimetre uh, fragment, 
Uh, we place that on top of a crystal and that's what we're going to bounce infrared light through uh, and some of that light will actually hit the surface of the sample uh, and that allows us to have the, the wave absorption effect uh, to give us our spectrum. What, uh, what we absorbed when we measured, what we saw when we measured the infrared spectrum uh, is a couple of really strong absorbance peaks at around about three, three microns in wavelength. Uh, and so these are very characteristic of long chain hydrocarbons uh, that we might, might see uh, in compounds like asphaltines or tarballs. There could be a range of other molecules that absorb here. Uh, and so what we wanted to then do was look at the rest of the spectrum uh, and to see if there was a, a fingerprint that would actually help confirm that it's asphaltine. Uh, so we can't be completely confident, uh, but there's some actual other vibrations that we're able to see light being absorbed from. Uh, and this matches up very, very closely with what we'd expect uh, asphaltine molecules, uh, which are found in tarballs to, uh, to be showing. So it is likely that it's naturally occurring. So uh, there, there could be uh, possibly non-naturally occurring ways to produce this, um, but the majority of spectra that we see in the scientific literature for nat naturally occurring tarballs uh, match very closely to the, the spectrum we've attained here. So it would seem to indicate that this is a naturally occurring tarball, uh, although we, we, can't be, uh, we can't say that with 100% certainty, but it does seem to be matching, matching up. Wow. And have you tested anything like this before? This is, uh, this is my first time, uh, so it was quite, uh, quite enjoy enjoyable for me to, to have a look what other scientists had done in the past and then to yeah, collect some data ourselves here uh, yeah. and play the, the forensic game of matching, matching the spectra with the scientific literature. Okay, and um, how often does it happen that we come across something that is naturally forming but that we, off we also manufacture by, you know, in oh. civilization? <laughs> uh, great question. We do, we do see that occasionally. Um, so often there might be compounds uh, that are found in uh, plants, for example, um, that we might see be made, made naturally that we are also making ourselves. Uh, but, but in general, I, I don't see um, a, lot, a lot of that, um, but there, there are examples where that can occur. What are the indicators that it's um, naturally occurring rather than human-made? Oh, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, and again, we can't, uh, I guess we don't, we don't have conclusive evidence. Uh, our, our main piece of evidence here is from I guess, scientists in, in other parts of the world where there's known to be naturally occurring tarballs coming from, from seeps in the, the ocean floor. So there's a lot of that scientific li uh, literature out there. Uh, and so they are not only producing one peak in the spectrum that's similar to ours, there, there's actually a, a dozen peaks that are very similar to ours. If there is some form of an industrial process occurring, we'd expect that to be changing the chemical composition and we'd then possibly see a, a different pattern of peaks. Uh, so, so say it was um, burnt rubber from you know, a fire that happened on a ship, what kind of things would you see? Uh, so what, what I would possibly expect to see is a high degree of oxidation as a result of that burning process. Uh, and so we would see peaks here where I'm pointing to where we pretty much have a, a flat area we'd expect that there'd be stronger peaks there as a result of that oxidation process. Uh, so again, this isn't a completely conclusive or foolproof, uh, but the spectrum isn't pointing towards a highly oxidized process uh, having occurred. Uh, so this is more likely to probably be a, a naturally occurring source. Wonderful. All right. Well, um, <laughs> interesting that you've never tested anything like it before. Yeah, first time. Maybe, uh, maybe there might be some more applications here for us. I mean, there's five or six kilos of it, so you're welcome <laughs> yeah. to the rest of the sample. Keep me busy. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. It was a tarball after all. Just some of the weird stuff washing up on southwest Western Australian beaches this winter. So is this wild weather an indicator of future winters on the southwest coast? Here's Dr Mike Cutler again. 
I think it's a really interesting sort of window into what could happen. Uh, we'll see how the climate evolves, but sort of, um, you know, with La Nina, let's say, causing a 15 centimeter rise in sea level, that's what's predicted to happen in the next 30 years or so. So it kind of gives us a little bit of a snapshot of what it could be like in the future. Um, but all of that will really depend on how things evolve over the next coming decades. That was Fiona Pepper reporting for Off Track from the southwest corner of Western Australia. I'm Ann Jones, and remember, meet us here at the same time next time. That's when we'll take you somewhere else. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.